Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of Abbas Kiarostami, as recommended by Benny Crown, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about Kiarostami's 2012, nope, I'm sorry, 2010 film, Certified copy. But before I get into that, a little bit of housekeeping, including, well, not including, but basically devoted to um, an announcement for me, some big news. I've been teasing it a little bit on the Facebook page in recent days that starting next week, I am launching a new second podcast uh, with friend and a friend of the show, James McCormick. You may remember him from, uh, he's been on the past, uh, he's been on in the past talking about Dare Argento and David Cronenberg. And the film or, or the podcast that we are starting is called The Cast of Cthulhu. It is going to be a podcast, a bi-weekly podcast, strictly devoted to reviewing cinematic adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft's work. Now, H.P. Lovecraft is my favorite author of all time. Um, I have uh, been a fan of him for a long time, and I've always wanted to kind of um, start this podcast. It was an idea that I had for a while. A few months ago, James was... Uh, tweeting out that he was really itching to get back into the podcasting game, um, and so I we touched base, um, and I told him the idea. He was really into it, so we just recorded the, uh, the, the, the pilot introductory episode, which kind of lays out what we're doing with it. It'll be going up next week, um, and that is called The Cast of Cthulhu, so be on the lookout for that. I'm really kind of excited about it. It's going to be a bi-weekly thing talking about, like I said, movie adaptations, but if it gets enough of a following and people are into it, we might expand it to... TV adaptations to other media, comic books, video games, novels, whatever. But I'm really excited about it. Um, I hope that you are excited about it as well. Uh, but that's just uh, the, the first thing that I wanted to kind of get out of the way. So um, now that we've got all that, uh, all that housekeeping out of the way, let's talk about Certified Copy, a movie that I was fully on board with for the first, like, 55 minutes. Um... I remember that it was 55 minutes because the, the, the moment that the film kind of shifted in terms of both the narrative and in terms of how I was responding to it, the time code was around 55 minutes because I, I rewinded it a couple times thinking that I missed something and realized that I didn't, but that's kind of why that number is in my head. But um, let me talk about the positive things and the things that I connected with first because I don't want this to, to, to be a, a pod or, or, or an episode kind of trashing the film because the film is, in many regards still pretty great and still, um, uh, not symptomatic, but, but it is still, um, a, a Kiarostami film and, and, and was, uh, was typifying what I had come to expect from him based on the conversation I had with Benny and the, at least that, that first episode, um, looking at Like Someone in Love. Now, um, from that opening shot, once again, just like with Like Someone in Love, from the very opening shot of Certified Copy, he establishes this observational style by just having a camera static pointing at um, a table, a table which is empty at first, and you just kind of see it with, um, with you know, the, 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 the soundtrack, not the soundtrack, but the kind of audible milling about of people waiting for someone to appear, and that someone is, of course, 
um, the uh, the novelist James that we're going to meet in a little bit later. But um, it just it kind of sets it up as though the camera is just kind of parked here and. Um, waiting to see what's going to happen. And then you have the translator obviously come up and say, like, you know, he's running late, and then the author finally kind of shows up, and the camera is just kind of parked there watching what's going on and just kind of watching what is happening. And it doesn't cut until we kind of see the audience. We see that there's a reserve seat in which um, Juliet Binoche's character eventually comes and fills in. And it's not just that there's a, a simple matter of a camera pointing and looking at something. That's not what I mean by observational. But what I mean by observational is letting the world be itself, letting the world play out, letting the characters play out while the camera just kind of sits there and observes what's happening, whether it is relevant to what we're seeing or not. And what I mean by that is um, while we are listening to to James kind of talk about his book, Certified Copy, the thesis of which is basically how um, a copy of a piece of art is just as valid, if not more valid than the original piece of art to begin with, we're listening to him kind of go through this kind of dryly in a way, but our attention, or at least our, our visual attention, is taken away because what we are then seeing is Juliet Binoche and her son kind of snipping back and forth at each other across the room because he wants to leave and get something to eat, and she really wants to stay and listen to this guy um, writing something down on a, on a piece of paper, which we later find out is her phone number. She wants to see him because she is as it turns out, not as interested in his work because she disagrees greatly with his thesis, but also she just seems like she wants to get to know him, like she has a bit of a crush on him, like she wants to start a relationship with him. And yet, while we are seeing her snipping back and forth with her son, we're still kind of hearing, dryly in the background, James talking about his book, talking about how uh, a copy is just as valid as the original, and yet that's not really relevant to what we're seeing, and yet the camera is just there taking it all in, whether it's supporting a thesis or not. That's what I mean when I talk about observational, because it is, it is like I said in the last episode, how visuals and language supplement each other can sometimes contradict each other, but how basically... Um, Kiarostami is just interested in looking at this world and looking at these characters as they are and as the world is playing out. Um, I uh, and, and I was also kind of interested and really intrigued by um, Kiarostami being um, self-referential or, or even meta um, in his commentary on one, being a filmmaker, and two, kind of an audience engaging with film and with art. Um it was, I was so fascinated by uh, really what seemed to be a conversation between Kiarostami and the audience playing out between uh, Juliet Binoche's character, who was just credited as, as L, she, basically, and James, and how they're, they're talking back and forth and disagreeing with each other. And it, and it seemed like, in, in a way that, maybe this is me projecting, but it almost kind of seemed like he was playing out, that Kiarostami was playing out a conversation between an artist and the audience that uh, is engaging with the art, and how um, there are disagreements, but how there's also a, a point of view, and you can... You can disagree with that, you can agree with it, but there's always going to be um, a point of view and there's always going to be an audience engaging with it. But even specific comments seem to support this discussion or this argument basically between uh, an artist and how someone is interpreting um, their art. Um, I mean, you have just a, a you know, on a, on a grand level, this idea of um, the a, a copy of something being 
as valid as the original. And now, when it comes to film, we can maybe apply that to the sense of, um, you know, uh, it, it, there is obviously an original, there, there's a, an original source, a, a cut that a filmmaker makes, and then every version that we see of it, every print that gets sent to a movie theater, or every DVD that's pressed, or Blu-ray, or digital file which is sent out to a streaming service for you to watch, is in essence a copy of itself. So, um, there is that certain uh, interpretation of like, well, the, the this copy is just as valid as the original, but you can even kind of apply it if you want. <laughs> I should preface that if you want, if you want to look very deep and kind of bring your own kind of um, interpretation to it, you can even look at it as um, an adaptation uh, or a remake or um, something like that. It's just, you know, if, if you are not aware of the original, of the source... Is that going to be bad, or is or or is your your appreciation or your connection with a you know um, an adaptation or in a way a copy um, is that more or less valid than if it was you know uh, we you know we have this conversation with people a lot I'm sure like oh I you know I saw the original I like the original better or like oh the book was better than the movie or, or that kind of thing and there, there's a lot of tension and and, and argumentative uh, nature between that idea and so i can almost kind of see an interpretation of that of like the copy being just as valid as the original like well is your appreciation or is your liking of of something even if it's not the original is that more or less valid than somebody else's opinion or even this idea of watching a film you know two people watching the same film and having two different interpretations um you know in, in a way it's almost sort of this is this is probably incredibly snooty and pretentious, and also I'm not sure if I'm expressing it eloquently enough, but two people engaging with the same piece of art but having wildly different interpretations of what that thing is in some weird existential or philosophical way is one seen as the original and the other seen as a copy, or is it two copies of the same thing? Because they're engaging with the same things, but they are interpreting it as two different pieces of art. There's, I think, even that level of kind of meta-commentary that Kiarostami is engaging with. And even when it gets down to the indiv like specific individual comments that um, that Elle and James are having in, in, the, in the car on the way to the museum that she wants to show him, he, um, he, has, he has comments such as, I didn't mean to sound so cynical, but when I saw all their hopes and dreams in their eyes, I just couldn't support their illusion. And that's a very specific instance of, of, of an emotional situation that they see playing out with a lot of the married couples they see. But also, if you want to take a step back and just look at it as a filmmaker making a commentary on, on the art that he's engaging with, what is film other than just an illusion? These aren't real people. This isn't a real story that it's telling, you know, so... Even, you know, kind of having this this uh, this cynical, snooty artist kind of saying, I couldn't support the illusion, um, that could, all I think, also kind of be seen as this idea of like, well, I, I can't support this interpretation of the film, or I can't even support this film, or I can't support this piece of art, I can't support that illusion. Um, and then even uh, when James and Elle are having the conversation about Elle's sister and how she really doesn't care for the way that her sister engages with art or interprets art i mean she calls her simple and james says i'm afraid there's nothing very simple about being simple and 
how I interpreted that comment playing out. Once again, fully admitting this is everything. This, I, I'm bringing all of this to the film. Whether Kiarostami intended this or not is a different conversation. But the thing that I'm saying is what I'm bringing to it based on my experience with Like Someone in Love and based on my experience with the conversation with Benny, I'm, I, I'm, I'm interpreting this as we had a film Like Someone in Love and we have a film like a certified copy in which the directing style does seem on its surface to be very simple. All he's mostly doing is just sticking a camera somewhere and just watching two people converse with each other, often in long takes. So there's not even a lot of cutting. There's not a whole lot of, um, I don't want to say there's not a whole lot of consideration, but it can seem as though there's not a lot of consideration to blocking to mise-en-scene if you want to say that and a lot of his conversations are just a simple shot reverse shot you know there's nothing gaudy or, or there's no flair to it it can seem on the surface to be simple and yet if you listen to my episode about like someone in love and, and you heard how I talked about how some of these quote-unquote simple scenes play out to be so complex in terms of emotions I mean think of the the scene with Akiko in the car when it, the camera is just watching her go through the streets of, of, uh, of Tokyo, um, just listening to her voicemail. And yet based on just this simple static camera of her watching and just kind of having this blank face and hearing the voicemail she's listening to, it tells this incredibly complex emotional story about her and her interaction or relationship with her grandmother. On paper, or at least on the surface, that can seem very simple. And yet the response to it is so complex and what's going on is so complex. I couldn't help but interpret James's line of, I'm afraid there's nothing very simple about being simple as that. Of there is nothing simple about what Kiarostami is doing. Just because he's placing a camera and seemingly that's it, there is a whole lot more consideration and thought and context to it. So that stuff I was super on board with, or at least... What I interpreted, <laughs> I was super on board with that because it seemed to kind of continue this story or these themes or this philosophy that I had seen play out in uh, Like Someone in Love. And yet, around the 55-minute mark is when Elle and James are in the little coffee shop and um, James steps out, of course, to take a, a phone call. And Elle starts having a conversation with the woman who runs the place. And the woman who runs the place misinterprets their relationship and thinks that they are a married couple. Now, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's actually kind of fun when Elle starts playing along with it. And yet, then James returns from his phone call. They both leave the cafe. And then they start seemingly playing out or or pretending to be this married couple that the cafe owner thought they were. And at first I thought it was just them pretending to be a, a married couple, uh, a couple that had been married for 15 years, a couple that have, have grown quite bitter towards each other and, and, and probably towards themselves. And I thought that this was happening because there had been previous conversations where she was trying to convince him how difficult it was to be a mother, how troublesome her son was, um, and, and, and just uh, and, and how they were so obviously philosophically opposed, or not opposed, but how they were in such philosophical disagreement with each other about, uh, about art specifically. I, I thought that what they were doing was now they were kind of extending this 
argument to, I, I guess, more a more intimate level even. I mean, kind of in a way play-acting um, this idea of like, well, you know, if, if we... And here's the thing, I, I was, I've, I've been grappling with this ever since I saw it, and I'm still not quite sure how I'm interpreting it, but I guess what I thought when I first saw it was they were trying to see that, I mean, if they had indeed gotten together initially to see if, if there was anything, you know, romantically between them, and then uh, their, even their first date with each other kind of went off the rails so easily and quickly, it was almost kind of an, an illusion for the both of them to kind of play out this idea of like, well, if we had continued this relationship further, this is how it would ultimately play out. If this is how we're getting along on, or not getting along more accurately, if this is how we're treating each other on this first romantic excursion with each other, just imagine how this would play out 15 years from now, basically. And I I thought with that, I kept kind of waiting for it to eventually get to a point where both of them would eventually kind of realize, maybe this is too simplistic, but just, yeah, this is a bad idea. We shouldn't do this. Um, by playing out the lives of another couple, by playing out this illusion, by basically kind of copying what they think a relationship between the two of them 15 years down the line or, or you know, 15 years from this point of them having gotten together initially, if they were copying that, what would that copy look like? And wouldn't it be worse than the original? At least in the sense of, hey, this life, this relationship, this marriage, 15 years on down the line, this copy of the romance that we once had, it's definitely not as good as the original. It is corrupt. That's sort of what I was thinking was was going to be the case. Um, that there was going to be a since since there was like a tangible a tangible moment that they both slipped into this role playing. There's also going to be a, a clear line in the sand or tangible moment or some definitive point in the narrative where they kind of crossed back over the line, just kind of admitted or, 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 or were back in the roles of, yes, we are total strangers, yes, you are an author and I am a fan or a critic, and yeah, that was a, a horrible, <laughs> that was a horrible role playing, that was a horrible illusion, um, best of luck to you with your book. And I'm going to go back to my son. Like, I, I thought there would kind of be a, a an acknowledgement from both characters that what we are doing or what we had just done is, is just play acting. And now let's get back to who we really were. But that doesn't happen. The film ends with them still very much in this, what is it, illusion? Is it, is it real? Is it uh, an act? Was the first 55 minutes the act? The film ends with them still in it. Um, with them kind of being in the same room, uh, the same hotel room in which they, you know, that they spent the first night that they got married. Wondering, can we get back to what we were, to what we had? And the admission that, no, we can't. Uh, 
everything, you know, this relationship is basically lost. Um, I believe it was, I don't know if it was God, uh, Godfrey Cheshire, who is the one that wrote the Criterion essay that accompanies this movie, or if it was Ebert, uh, Roger Ebert, but one of them interprets that final shot uh, where, in which James is looking directly into the camera as sort of an omission, you know, because in the film it's supposed to be him looking in the mirror, um, but they interpret it as, by him looking directly into the camera, we know exactly where the fault lies, that the, uh, that the relationship has fallen apart. So if we go by that interpretation, then, then you know, where the film ends is the real relationship, basically. Um, so we eventually have this shift about halfway through the film in which we've stepped into a, a, a different world or into a different relationship. And I wasn't really sure, is this real? Is this illusion? What is this? And I... I wasn't comfortable with that, or I couldn't reconcile it with what I had watched. I, I couldn't reconcile the two halves of this film together. And so what I did is, is what I mostly do, in which I go to the writings of people who are smarter than me and try and see what did they think, how did they interpret it. Was it just something that I, that I missed? Was there a, a clue somewhere that I wasn't paying attention to? Or is there another way of interpreting or thinking about this film that I didn't consider that might help me appreciate it more? So as I said, I went to Gottfried uh, Cheshire and I went to Roger Ebert, both of whom int uh, have kind of different, I don't even want to say interpretations, but different reactions to the film. Um, and I have to say that neither of them really helped me. Um, I'll, I'll read a portion of uh, Gottfried Cheshire's Criterion essay. It's called uh, Certified Copy at Home and Abroad. And of course, I will link to this on the Facebook page. But this is just an excerpt from it that uh, in which seems to get to... to, to the heart of what he took away from it and why. And he says, In discussing the influence of poetry on his work, Kiarostami has often spoken of leaving gaps or elisions in his stories in order to invite or oblige the viewer to consciously participate in the creation of meaning. Certified copy certainly qualifies as a variation on this technique. Ultimately, we must determine what quote-unquote happens, or doesn't, in the film, which means that our, our intentions regarding the characters... Do we want them to be strangers or spouses, flirtatious or alienated, are at least as important as Kiarostami's. As for what he intends, both cinematically and personally, some of that may be discerned by pondering the two films that Certified Copy arguably has the most significant relationship to, Roberto Rossellini's Voyage to Italy and Kiarostami's own The Report. And then later on in the essay, he gets into a little bit more of Kiarostami's personal life, specifically being a... Um, someone who has gone through a divorce before and the how that personally affected you know the filmmaker and it seems like my biggest takeaway from his essay was that in order to sort of uh, more fully understand what Kiarostami was doing with the shift what he was doing in exploring with these two characters is so intimately tied to what you may know or not know of Kiarostami's personal life and some of the films that have influenced him as a filmmaker and inherently, that's not bad, but I don't know a whole lot about Kiarostami. I've never seen those films. I don't know how they influence him. So it's almost kind of saying there's some insider knowledge that you need in order to kind of fully grasp this or engage with it on a different level. So that left me kind of lacking because I'm like, well, I don't have that insider information. I don't, I, I, I don't have this, you know, those, to put it crassly, I don't, I don't have those cheats, basically. I, I don't know what he is referencing, so I, I don't know what influences may have led him to make these decisions in the narrative, basically. 
So then I went to Roger Ebert's review, and, and Ebert, once again, I will link to this, of course. Um, this is a sample from his review. What it comes down to is, we assume there's more going on here than meets the eye, but maybe what meets the eye is all that's going on, and there is no complete objective reality. Does that also apply to a copy of a masterpiece of art? Is a skillful copy of the Mona Lisa less valuable than the original painting? What if the original had been lost? Would we treasure the copy? It's a lot of questions, and, and his review ultimately gets to the point that he doesn't understand what's going on, and he is not just at peace, but he loves the fact that there is no easy answer. Not even that there's no easy answer, that there's no answer at all. Um, he, he loves the mystery, and that didn't help me at all either because I... I don't know why there. There's uh, some of the, sometimes in my personal life, you know, that I, I can I can kind of um, give myself into a mystery of, of of grander things, and even in certain films I can do that. But for some reason, it 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 just didn't. I don't want to say it didn't work for me, but I, I just well, no, I guess it it didn't work for me. Um, and maybe it was the fact that the the rug was so tho- excuse me so thoroughly pulled out from under me that I thought I had a grasp of something and for 55 minutes for almost an hour I had settled on okay I'm on board with this film I know what it's doing I know where it's going and then all of a sudden partway through Kirstein is like nope you have no idea and then never really settles it never resolves it never even hints as to why he is doing it and just leaves it up to you as to, well, you, you, you figured out and not even you figured out. What does it mean to you? It might've just been the fact that, that the shift was so sudden and so had such a gravity behind it that I just kind of didn't recover from it. Basically. I don't know. It's strange. I mean, you, you know, if you listen to the episode on like someone in love, the abruptness of the ending kind of startled me not because it was abrupt but just because it didn't seem to resolve that the ending almost in a way kind of felt like the film was just being abandoned and I talked to Benny about that for a little bit after I saw the film and he of course disagreed with it um, but in his mind the the window shattering at the end and, and just it wasn't so much like the the why behind it, but it was just the shock, which was enough for him to end it. The fact that we had settled into something, that we had settled into a mood, that we had settled kind of into, um, a, you know, a familiarity with the characters and with the emotions of it, that it was the shock that was enough to kind of end things, to kind of shake it up. And in a way, I understand what he's saying, but that wasn't, I don't want to say that wasn't enough for me, but I, I, I just, I didn't respond to it like he did. And so in this one, we have kind of a, a similar emotional, not a similar emotional jarring experience, but we do have an emotional jarring shift taking place halfway through the film. And someone like Benny, I can imagine, could be really psyched by that, could be really thrilled by the fact that like, okay, I thought I had the, the, the film's rules down, I thought I had the world down, I thought I had the characters down, and I was wrong. And that could be thrilling for some people, but but in this context, it wasn't so thrilling for me. Um, and and I guess also in a way, it, it's kind of throwing me off too because I thought I had some idea of kind of what to expect, which is foolish because I because uh, I'd only seen one film. But after like someone in love, I kind of thought I had a template of what I could expect, and then certified copy kind of tells me like, nah, nah, you you, you got to pay attention to to the next one. You gotta you gotta. You got to keep guessing. 
And maybe that's also just a byproduct too of of the order in which I'm watching these films, the order in which that Benny recommended them. That I that I started with his last one, and then I'm and then I'm stepping back a couple films now to certified copy. And what I'm not seeing is development. Um, what I'm seeing is kind of like a deconstruction, not a deconstruction, but I'm sort of working backwards. I have to kind of um, take some pieces away to just kind of see how in context, how could certified copy lead to like someone in love instead of um, the other way around, basically. But, I mean, as I said, there was a whole lot of stuff about this film that I liked. There was a whole lot of stuff about um, uh, Kiarostami as a director that I saw established or... <laughs> I guess the joke uh, is on me that it wasn't established in like uh, someone in love first. That, but you know that I, I kind of saw a, a fully fleshed out, fully realized Kiristami in like someone in love, and in certified copy saw a good chunk of where that came from and what that ultimately turned into. So the film was frustrating in many regards to me, but it was also still kind of illuminating. It was also still kind of admirable in a lot of ways. So. Um, when it comes to any film that I am myself not sure of what I thought of it or not sure of um, how I, quote-unquote, should be interpreting it, I, have, I am, of course, always curious to hear from other people. So um, if you have thoughts, if you have opinions, if you have agreements, if you have disagreements, uh, feel free to reach out to me. It's always easy enough to email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. You can tweet at me at NolanFixesTeeth. Uh, you can uh, catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly dot com dot com. Sorry, back episodes of I Do Movies Badly at BattleshipRetention dot com or on I Do Movies Badly dot Podbean dot com. So, um, oh, availability, of course. Um, if you have the Criterion Channel, then uh, certified copy is free to stream there. If you do not have the Criterion Channel, then it is uh, available for rental or purchase in all your usual haunts. Amazon, YouTube, Google Play, iTunes, and the PlayStation Store um, as well. So um, that does it for certified copy. Um, next week, of course, I am wrapping up Kiristami with close-up. Um, but also next week, once again, I am launching uh, the cast of Cthulhu with, uh, with James McCormick. That will be, a once again, a bi-weekly podcast reviewing... Cinematic adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft, and that is going to be him, him and I all the time. So in this podcast, of course, it's me and a guest in the introduction, and then it's me for the rest of the month. One of the things that I love about those introductory episodes is the conversation, is the discourse, is having a conversation with someone who is um, just as enthusiastic about film art as I am. And so that's one of the things that I'm really looking forward to. Uh, with this because James is a fun guy he's a great guy to talk to and he's a he's got a little bit different taste (laughs) than I do um if you remember when I was uh covering the films of Dario Argento um I believe it was last October you'll know that I was really not a fan of his stuff um and when I uh was texting James about it his response was like yeah I get that (laughs) um but he was obviously a fan of stuff. So I think these, this uh, different approach, or, or at least our two different approaches, are really going to bring something to it. And um, the cinematic world of H.P. Lovecraft is, um, let's say, diverse in quality, um, to, to, to put it um, quite simply. But So uh, the cast of Cthulhu is beginning next week. Close Up uh, uh, and Finishing Up Kiarostami is next week. And also... If for no other reason, you should listen to next week's episode because I have another bit of big news in regards to uh, my guest for October that I don't want to spoil now, but you should definitely listen to that to find out who is my guest going to be, what we're going to be talking about, what the theme for October is going to be. It's very exciting. I'm very excited. You should be very excited. 
Um, and that's that. So yeah, be, t- uh, be sure to tune in next week where I'll be covering all that wonderful stuff. And of course, wrapping up uh, Abbas Kiarostami and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 